Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. As we continue with introductory thoughts of our in-depth study of the Book of Romans, today Pastor Murphy discusses the recipients of the Book of Romans, the Church in Rome. I would ask you to turn to Romans chapter 1 and let us read a section there in Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse number 7. In verse number 7, the Apostle Paul says to these believers, he said to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I have made mention of you always in my prayer. Sometimes I wonder if Paul had any time to do anything else. When he writes to these epistles, he's always saying, I had you always in my prayer. I'm constantly praying. He's a man that says you must pray without ceasing. And one must believe the Apostle Paul was constantly in that mode of prayer for these churches. He goes on to say in verse 10, making requests, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto. And that simply means I was hindered. I wanted to come, but I was hindered. Then he goes on, he says, that I might have some fruit among you also, even among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And then if you take your hand and, and turn in the same book, chapter 15, notice what he says in verse number 20 of chapter 15. He said, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way hitherto, hitherto by you, if first... I be somewhat filled with your company. Let's have a word of prayer as we deal with our passage. Father, as always, we are dealing with sacred truth. We're handling the sacred word. We are not meddling in mythology or human thinking. We're dealing with the very word of God. And when we come to your word, we come with a spirit of expectation that there must be something in your word that is there and that there is some relevant truth that relates to us. 
Lord, we look at a situation in the world today and we sometimes think it is hopeless. We think that it is only fit for judgment and the world can't get any worse than it is. But when we come to a passage like this, we understand the transforming power of Christ. That the gospel could come into the great metropolis of the world. The great center of vice and degradation. And there a seed of truth is planted in the hearts of people. And a church is formed. A complete marvelous event. And the apostle Paul is writing to them. Help us to believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That it really has a transforming energy in it. It is dynamite. It is power that you have. And I pray, Lord, that somehow in the process of dealing with this epistle and looking at the character of the people that the Apostle Paul wrote to, understanding the history and the background to this church and even the circumstances that surrounded and the environment in which this church was formed, that we might once again have hope in a darkening world that God has given to us his word, the gospel, the glad tidings, the good news. And that it can actually do a great transforming work even here in Antigua and different parts of the world. Help me as I glean through this passage and try to expound part of it. That you may give me the capacity to bring out its truth. And to somehow relate it and show the relevance of it today. As far as our church is concerned and as far as Christianity on a global level is concerned. May you bless those that are here. May you give them the capacity to sit and to listen, to grapple with truth, to concentrate, not to be distracted by the the dint of noise around, but to try to give some attention to your word and see exactly how it relates and how it can be helpful in the 21st century world. Holy Spirit, use your truth, confirm your truth in the hearts of your people, and would you help this feeble servant to be able to handle the word adequately in a manner that pleases you and honors you and shows due respect to the authority of scripture. Whatever is accomplished, whatever is done, whatever the results, whether in the visible results or the invisible work in the hearts of people, we will always give you the honor and the glory and the praise because only you can truly, genuinely transform and change people. It's your work. We're just instruments. And I pray, Lord, that we would be the kind of instrument you can use. Bless this time together, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. If you were here, the first session we dealt with the book of Romans. You remember that we have decided to deal with this great epistle. It's called the Magnum Opus of the Apostle Paul, his chief work. We gave you some general information about the epistle itself. Uh, We're just doing some introductory remarks. We'll come to the details of the epistle. But we think that in order for you to understand the particulars and the details, it's important for you to give you a general overview of the epistle. So we began to look at the epistle in terms of its effect in history. And we showed you that the book of Romans has had tremendous impact in the lives of so many great saints. Martin Luther would never have been saved. would never have started the great Protestant revolution apart from the book of Romans. John Bunyan, that great author, 
the man that spent some time in prison and gave us Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War, two of the greatest allegorical writings that you will ever read. Again, it's attributed to this particular man. Uh, John Wesley as well was influenced by this particular book. So we, we kind of kind of give you some background to the way the Lord has used the book of Romans in the lives of so many great saints in the history of the church. And then having dealt with that and gone into some detail and some illustration, we talked about the Apostle Paul himself, the man who wrote this book. And we showed you how the Lord had adequately prepared the Apostle Paul in both in terms of his background, in terms of the fact of where he was born, the great city of Tarsus, his Roman citizenship, the fact that he was a great intellectual that sat down at the feet of Gamaliel and learned in all the, the ways of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. A man of culture. A man that was at ease quoting Greek poets in the book of Romans, in the, in the book of Acts as he travels and deal with the, came in contact with the Roman the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture. A man that could quote their own poets in the, in the process of preaching and teaching and, and ministering and discoursing. And we, we try to show you that all of this, all of that background, God was going to use in the Apostle Paul to write this great book of Romans. Now tonight, I want to continue in that same vein. And I want to consider some general remarks about the identity of these readers. Uh, who are these people that the Apostle Paul is writing to? I want to look at the composition of this church. Uh, what kind of a church was it? What were the membership like? And then thirdly, I want to look at the Apostle Paul in terms of what he said with a distinct purpose why he wrote this epistle. What was the whole purpose of the book of Romans? Why does Paul write this book of Romans? Now, If you look at verse number 7 in this first chapter you'll find that the Apostle Paul identifies those to whom he's writing. Notice what he says. He says, to all that be in Rome. And clearly, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Roman church. When that mere expression, to those that are in Rome, I want to say that here indeed is what I may call one of the most marvelous and wonderful statements that could ever be made. That here in a city like Rome, that you can have a quality church of this nature. A Christian church that the Apostle Paul can actually sit down and write them a letter. Rome of all places. Rome the mistress of the world. Rome the great metropolis of the ancient world. Rome where everything conceivable was done in Rome's. It was the most corrupt center of the world. It's like the Paris of modern times. It's like the London. It's like New York. See? And, uh, and sometimes we, we look at those situations, and those of you who are aware of the corruption in a lot of these different countries and cities and so on, you wonder sometimes, can the gospel ever establish in the hearts of people? And when you read to all that in Rome, the thought perishes. That God's marvelous power can so penetrate the very center of iniquity, and that the transforming work of Christ can bring about an established church there. What a great testimony to the marvelous power of the gospel that a church can literally be established in the Roman Empire. Something that was inconceivable, something that was unthinkable, happened. And Paul is now writing, and Paul is saying, hey, there's a church in Rome. Incredible that something like that should happen. Now if you want to reconstruct the scene and you want to remind yourself of some of the conditions in the Roman Empire at the time. If you want Paul's assessment of the moral state 
and the degradation that was so common in the Roman Empire. All you need to do is to look at chapter 1 and read from chapter 1 verse 19 and following. And you will see the Apostle Paul in that particular passage spend some detailed time outlining the particulars of the moral state of the Roman Empire there in that first epistle. As a matter of fact, Paul lists 19 of the most horrible vices that you can ever conceive. You think homosexuality is just something happening? Read Romans. They left the natural use of the woman and burned in their desires men with men doing that which is unseemly. See, This is the Roman Empire. So you think we're the, same, the first generation that's going to fight and people are going to call us homophobic? No. The Roman Empire was so corrupt. And one can go through and see that Paul painted one of the worst moral degradation pictures that any writer has ever painted, whether secular or sacred. It's a horrible portrait that Paul gives us with these 19 of the worst forms of vices that you can conceive. But yet, the gospel came in that world with all these vices. And from among those people who lived in that kind of environment and that kind of an atmosphere, who lived such base and vulgar lives, a church was formed of whom Paul can now write an epistle to. There's nothing more marvelous than that, I want to tell you. See. There's nothing like more great. And we must never feel, never feel that the world is so bad. The gospel can't change the situation. The environment is so degraded. It is no use. Now when you come to the book of Romans and you read a church in Rome, hope springs alive again. You say, listen, there's hope for any situation, any condition. And that's the glory of the gospel. The only explanation for why a church was in Rome and why such a radical transformation was taking place and such a revolutionary change had taken place, the only explanation is it is what Paul said in verse number 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation. See? So when you read Paul says in Rome, immediately you see the marvel and the wonder that a church could ever be established. But that's the power of the gospel. Nothing else could have produced a Christian church in Rome. And only in the gospel can we find the dynamic and the power to change any environment, any situation, any circumstance. It doesn't matter how bad it is. When the gospel comes, they can be transformed. It's that power. It's that mystery of that power that works in the lives of people. Now, having said that, the answer cries out for us is, how did this church come about? Who started it? Uh, how did the church in Rome begin? And who were the first people that brought the gospel to Rome? Now, to you, that's not important, but to us Protestants, it should be fairly important. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church have this superstitious belief that Pope Peter started it. See? And so they try to have a long pedigree that goes back to Simon Peter saying that the basilica in Rome, that Simon Peter is the one that started that church. But is that true? See, Rome is the fountainhead of a global network of ecclesiastical pomposity. See, see. You realize that the Pope is traveling the world. You realize that when he comes to a country, red carpet is services offered to him. Boy, if you see the pageantry and the pomposity and all, and the papers with all these pictures and so that is Rome in all of her glory. See, 
the great apostate church, the great whore that will dominate the world in the end time that the Bible warns about. The one church that's going to bring all together, not only just Christians, but Hindus and Muslims and, and, and Buddhists and, and Taoists. Because I'll show you today that that's exactly where that church is headed. But it's important for us to understand how this church started. And we must discountenance the idea that the church in Rome was started by any pope called Peter. Peter was never a pope, never will be, never can be. And he's not the first pope. See? But that's beside the point. So it's important for us to ask the question, how did this church get started? And let us begin to answer that question. First of all, let me deal with it negatively. The first thing I'd like to say is that this Roman church that we're dealing with here in this epistle was not founded by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, goes to great lengths in writing this epistle. And he makes it very, very clear as he's writing this epistle that he has never been in Rome. That's why I read the passage to you there. Notice what he says in verse 9 and following. He says, For God is my witness, I serve in my spirit of the gospel, that without ceasing I make mention of you all, making requests, if by any means at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you. And then drop down to verse number 13. Now I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto. Every time I made an attempt to come to Rome, something blocked me. That's what Paul is saying. I haven't been there. See, And it needs to be very clear that when Paul is writing to the epistle, the apostle Paul is not writing to the church that he's established. This is not a Pauline ministry. Paul did not lay the foundation for this church. But he often hoped to go to that ministry, to that church, to minister, and he never got an opportunity. If you look at chapter 15... And verse number 20 and verse verse number 22 again. Notice what he said. Yes, so I have strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. For as it is written, to whom he has not spoken, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much, what? Hindered from coming to you. So when you ask the question, who founded this church? Who founded this ministry? The first thing I need to say to you, the Apostle Paul is not the one that established this church. He's not the one. Clearly, he is discountenancing and uh, he is denying in any way that he's the one that responsible for this particular church. There's something else that needs to be said here about this particular passage. The Apostle Paul, when you do a comparative study of Acts chapter 20 and Romans chapter 16. Now we'll come eventually to Romans chapter 16. But you'll find that in that particular chapter, the final chapter, the Apostle Paul sends greetings. And he sends greetings to over 27 different individuals. And if you go through that list of the 27 individuals that the Apostle Paul greets, you'll find that the Apostle Paul mentions a man called Gaius. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 20, you'll find that there's a reference there to that same man, Gaius. In other words... This particular book was written by Paul on his third missionary journey when he was in the book of Acts at Corinth. And the fact that he mentions the man Gaius, both in in the book of Acts and also in in the book of Romans, indicates clearly that that's about the same time frame that this book was written. So Paul was not there. Paul was in Corinth long after the church was founded there in Rome. And I would like to say that it's important for us to, to understand that the Apostle Paul is not responsible for this particular church being founded but yet he's writing to it okay i would like to say secondly uh, not only is paul not the founder of the church but peter is not the founder 
So Pastor Murphy, how do you know that Peter is not the founder? Well, again, let me ask a question. Is it conceivable that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that Peter founded? That in the process of writing to that church, in the last chapter, he greets so many of the people who are in Rome. 27 of them I refer to. Right? 27. He mentions 27. And not once. Is it conceivable that Peter is a pastor and Paul does not even greet, Hi Peter, how are you doing? See? So Rome has created a fictitious history based purely on tradition and myth when they claim that Peter was the author of this particular church and he was the one that founded it. He's not mentioned in all the greetings of Paul. But here's another reason. If you look again, as I read in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul said he, he practices ministry based on a principle. And what was Paul's principle? The Apostle Paul was a pioneer missionary. And the Apostle Paul's principle was this. He would not encroach on another man's territory. See? He consciously avoided building on another man's foundation. Paul saw himself as a great pioneer. Founding churches, establishing churches. So he stayed away from people where the territory, Simon Peter was in charge of a territory. Or, and he stayed away from that. He wanted to preach the gospel where the gospel had not been preached. He made that very clear in chapter 15 verse 20. He would not build on another man's foundation. So if Simon Peter was the one that had founded that church, it is very unlikely the Apostle Paul would have written to that church in the process. So there's no historical evidence whatsoever. And then the third reason, of course, and this is where the Roman Catholic has to concede, there's no absolute historical evidence, either in the New Testament or in the secular world, that Simon Peter was ever there in Rome at the time this church was founded. They even have to concede that. It is based purely on hearsay and tradition. But that's the Catholic Church for you. They deal in the realm of myths and tradition. See, We deal in the realm of truth and certainty, etc. So those are three reasons why I would say to you clearly that the, the Simon Peter did not found the church and also I would say to you the apostle Paul did not found the church and then there's a third thing I would like to say quickly I would suggest to you that when you look at what Paul's statement that was made it was not founded by any other of the apostles again the apostles Paul said I will not build another man's foundation so this is not a church that was started by the apostles now that's important that is to you that is just a small that is not significant but you're dealing with a church in the great metropolis of Rome, founded in Rome, a place of complete degradation, a place where vice is so common that immorality and all kinds of sexual perversion is so pervasive, but yet that church is founded not by an apostle. Well, how did it start? And I believe that the best explanation of how this church was started is when you go to the book of Acts. If you turn there for just a moment, the book of Acts chapter 2. You remember we're dealing with the day of Pentecost. And those of you that are familiar with the book of Acts will remember that at the great Pentecost, there were people from all over the world, all kinds of proselytes and priests had come from all over the, the known world to come to Jerusalem to the day of Pentecost. And what is very significant is what it says in verse number 10 of chapter 2. Verse 8 says, And how hear we every man our own tongue wherein we are born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites. And uh, dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, verse 10. And Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya unto Cyrene. And what? 
strangers of what? Of Rome. Namely, Jews and proselytes. You know what I think happened? I believe that these people came up to Jerusalem at the time for the day of Pentecost. I believe they heard the great preaching of the apostles. I believe that they were marvelously transformed by the gospel. And that they made their way back to Rome. Uh, they became burdened for Rome. And I believe that out of that core group, those people, not apostles, Jewish people converted, proselytes converted, ordinary people that came under the gospel, who heard the gospel, who heard of the power of Christ and the resurrection, who saw the Holy Spirit working. They were so transformed that when they returned to where they came from in Rome, they started a little core group. And that is what I believe the church of Rome came from. See? You see, don't, you don't have to depend only on the pastor, on the deacons, on the, the people in, in, in what you might think in authority. You can make influence where you are. See? Listen, there are people who start churches in their home. See? All of the churches that were started in Barbados, every single one of them came out of a Bible club ministry. Started, the one in Brandon's where I'm from was started in my mother's home. Bible club ministry. Out of the Bible club ministry, you started having Sunday school. Out of Sunday school, you started having a morning service. Out of a morning service, then you added a night service. And presto, you got an established church there. I'm saying to you, use your influence where you are. See? Antigua is a great place where you've got all these different nationalities. In this church uh, tonight, there are people from America. There are people from Jamaica. And there are people from uh, the Dominican Republic in the back. There are people from St. Lucia. I mean, there's a melting pot. See? And we got to remember that when people come to this ministry, we have an opportunity to share the gospel. That gospel may so transcend some person. They leave back and they go back to the country. Maybe not now, but later. And guess what? Years later, the Lord has done a work and begun a church to start. See? It's a marvelous way in which God works. See? Not Simon Peter, not Paul, but simple believers who come under the sound of the gospel and convert it, go back to their country and share the glad tidings. And out of that, God begins to work and a ministry is started and the great church of Rome is started. And Paul can say, throughout the whole world, your testimony is known. The, the whole known world, the Christian world, hears about you. Think about that. And they can't say, hey, who started you? Paul did. Peter did. No. A band of people who went to Jerusalem, got under the sound of the gospel, went back and started the ministry and the church started. See? That's the way God works. It's a marvelous thing when Paul says to the church in Rome. See, Marvelous. How God's power can so transform. There's another option, however. You remember, as I pointed out to you, that Rome is the great metropolis of the Roman Empire. The London, the, the Paris, the New York of its day. And people were constantly moving from one point to the other, coming and going. People from all parts of the world. Some were soldiers, some were merchants, others were artisans, some were travelers, some were the common ordinary people. And don't think that tourists just started in the 21st century. They've always been rich people, wealthy people, been traveling all over the world. See. But here's Rome, where everybody wants to get, and it is also likely. By the way, in the book of Acts, we read about Aquila and Priscilla in Rome. But they were not born in Rome, but they're in Rome. See. I'm just saying to you, the likelihood that there's some Christians who had gotten... Saved and probably in the travel as merchants, dealing in commerce, and was able as well to, to be responsible for that particular meal. I believe that along these two lines is an explanation. 
of how this church was started. Paul didn't start it. Peter didn't start it. None of the apostles started it. Otherwise, the apostle Paul would never have written to encroach on another man's territory. He said, I'd be very, very careful not to build another man's foundation. My next question, of course, is not only who founded this church, but what was the composition of this church? Who made up this church? See, Uh, Again, when you go to the final chapter, you get an idea of the kind of composition of which this church was made about, the membership of this church, the very character and composition of this church, the list that is given to us in chapter 16, makes it very clear that this was a mixed church. And what I mean by that, some of these people in this church were Jews. How do we know that? Because when Paul wrote chapter 16, verse 17, he says, Greet Andronicus and greet Junia. He said, My kinsman according to the flesh. Some of Paul's family formed part of that church. Jewish people were part of that church. And you read chapter 16, you see out of the the list of names, not only do you find that Paul's family being Jewish are part of that church, but you find that the majority of names are Greek names. And the the clear indication there is that there are mainly a Gentile church. So you've got Jews, some of Paul's family, you've got Gentiles. But then if you go through in the the, the list in chapter 16, you'll find reference to of a man's household. Again and again. Now anytime you read that word of a man's household, it doesn't mean a man's children. When you talk of a man's household, it means his servants, his slaves. And don't forget in the Roman world, the vast majority of people were not free men like you and I are. The vast majority of Christians in the New Testament days were in bondage, they were slaves. But yet in this church you've got Jews, you've got Gentiles, and then you've got even slaves. It's a melting pot. A melting pot. God had not only saved the Jew, he not only saved the Gentile, but even some of these uh, slaves became part of that particular ministry there. Then there's one other thing I would like to say about this church. It's a composite church. It's a, a mixed church with Jews and Gentiles and a lot of slaves inside the particular church. And Paul is writing to them. That's the kind of church that was founded there. And again, uh, when I think about that, the marvel of that is just astounding. The real marvel. that The gospel of Christ, the power of God, can reach Jew, it can reach Gentile, and it can reach men in bondage. See? You think about that for just a moment. See? Oh, what a great truth we have. What a great gospel we have. What a great God we have. What a great word we have. And our job is to plant the seed. Preach the truth. And let God do the work. Great mystery that takes place with the word. Just give the word. I tell people this. You're not responsible for saving anybody. As a matter of fact, can I tell you something that you need to know? You can't save anybody. Did you hear what I tell you? You have never saved anybody. You will never save anybody. You can't save anybody. All you are is an instrument in God's hand to declare the message and God does the saving. So your responsibility is not to to get people to make decisions. That's not your job. Your job is to be a witness, to declare the truth. Let the spirit work and they come to faith. When you have done that, you've discharged your responsibility. Don't be discouraged when you get up there and people ask you, how many got saved? Well, nobody got saved. But do you know the seed you sow today? Another guy come by and witness and it's watered. And guess what? Somewhere down the line, God gives the increase. But you think in heaven, what's going to happen? Huh? You think the person that was the final product of leading that person to the Lord and get all the credit? No, sir. 
It's a process. God will show you, look, this person was involved in it. They sowed the seed. This other guy came by and he watered. You just happened to pick the fruit. See? So don't be discouraged in the whole process of witnessing that you're not seeing tangible results and you're not seeing many. So people get discouraged about that. Pastor, it's not worth going out there anymore because nobody listening to the gospel, nobody responding. How do you know that? How do you know that when you tell them something is not something that the Lord puts in their mind to think about and they're sleeping for weeks down the line? Something happened and that comes back. Listen to me. Just be faithful in giving out a witness and a testament. Leave this work of regeneration to God. Don't force ripe apples either. Don't force people into the kingdom. Final thing I'd like to say about this is that the Apostle Paul writes in verse number 7, To all that beware in Rome. Do you notice that small little preposition in Rome? Do you notice the difference if Paul has said the church of Rome? You see the difference? And I want to say to you, as you go through these different salutations in the Bible, the singular fact that is restated again and again, that when they're writing, Paul writes the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Rome. It is never the church of Colossae, the church of Ephesus, and it's important. There is no such thing as a national church. That's the point I'm making. Now, of course, the church of England, the Anglican church, is called the church of England. The national church of England. The crown controls the church in England, if you know that or not. The queen is the head of the church in England. Do you know that? Paul never had such a monstrosity in mind. See, It's never the church of. It's always the church in. See, And I hope that we can understand that. We must preserve that distinction. The church is a gathering out of a community and they're bringing into Christ. So it, it is of Antigua, but it is in Antigua. In other words, Antiguans get saved. But it, it is not the Antiguan church. It's the church of God in Antigua. The corrupt conception of a national church. Uh, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, could I say something to you? Part of the problem that we get a lot of confusion about, we need to go back to what Paul wrote in the book, the churches in Galatia, not the church of Galatia. This idea of the ecumenical, everybody coming together. They don't talk about the churches in Antigua, the church in Antigua. But again, you read Paul's epistle, it's the churches in Corinth, it's the churches in Galatia, it's the individual churches. We've got to keep the language of scripture very, very, very clear. Other than that, we will fall victim to the idea that we must become one big conglomerate. We must be one universal church. And of course, I'm telling you, it's going to happen eventually. The Pope is going to be head of this great monstrosity, this great world sin. But we as Baptists must remember that we're not part of that. We are the church of God in Antigua. We must maintain that identity and that, that matter is so important for us. Now, we can elaborate on that. But I don't want to because I want to say we need to avoid this idea of the super church. There are times when we need to cooperate. Of course we need to cooperate. We are are Baptists. We need to support these other functions. But the idea that we would link hands with everybody in Antigua because we want to create this church of Antigua. Or the church of Antigua. That will never happen. Never happen. And I know that you might see that I'm making a small point. That's a very large point in Paul. The church in, not the church of. Two different things altogether. This is not, not a natural church. 
small matter, but Paul, when you take Paul's word, you analyze them, you understand there's a reason why Paul wrote the way that he does in the process. Now that we know more about the church in Rome, join us again next time on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy tells us why Paul wrote to this church. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.